This is A is for Adversity, a podcast about curating your life stories to connect more deeply with others. Some stories may have Christian undertones, and all stories will involve a realization or transformation of some sort. I'm your host, Jen Banks. This is episode I, Inside a Story. Hello, thank you for joining me. If you're new, welcome. This episode is going to be a little bit different because it's going to be a book study of sorts. Matthew Dix has written many fiction novels, and his only nonfiction title currently is Storyworthy Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. That is the book I will be referencing in this episode, and I highly encourage you to buy it because, again, even if you don't plan on telling stories professionally, it has such good tips for just improving your conversations with others. As I learned from Sherry Fernandes, one of my guests on a different episode, Every book we own, if possible, should be a workbook. I certainly did this with Matthew Dick's book, Storyworthy. There are things marked, highlighted, circled, and I transferred all those notes into a Word document. And then for this episode, I highlighted the parts that I especially wanted to talk about. So this episode is the summary of my summary of the book. (sighs) He broke the book into three sections, finding stories, crafting stories, and telling stories. The format for this episode will follow that same structure. First of all, finding stories. I mentioned a few of these in episode F, finding stories. So I will again reiterate those, and then I will go through some others. First and foremost is homework for life. And if you haven't Googled that yet, please do that because Matthew Dix gives a wonderful TED talk on explaining that, and it's much better to hear him explain it than hearing it secondhand from me. There are four places, though, in the book that he talks about, or that I specifically wrote down some quotes about homework for life, and he has a whole chapter on it. Chapter three is about homework for life. The first quote is on page 42, and he says about homework for life, if I had to tell a story from today, a five-minute story on stage about something that took place over the course of this day, what would it be? As benign and boring and inconsequential as it might seem, what was the most story-worthy moment from my day? And then another quote that I liked was on page 46. This is him talking about how, over time, he developed a storytelling lens. With this lens, he began to see that his life was full of stories that he never noticed before. Moments of real meaning that, if not recorded, were just lost. He went on to say, There are moments when you connect with someone in a new and unexpected way. Moments when your heart fills with joy or breaks into tiny pieces. Moments when your position on an issue suddenly shifts or your opinion of a person changes forever. Moments when you discover something new about yourself or the world for the first time. Moments when a person says something you never want to forget or desperately wish you could forget. And I like when he expounds on these moments like this because it gives me ideas and sparks things in my mind of what could be a story in my day. It helps me pay more attention to things that are happening. Okay, two more quotes about homework for life. I like spending a lot of time on this specifically because this is his main point and what it all comes down to. He says, I sit down every evening and ask myself, what is my story from today? What is the thing about today that has made it different from any previous day? Then he writes his answer down. And he now has more stories than he could ever imagine. And then the last quote on homework for life is on page 99. So this is, again, out of the chapter on homework for life, but he referenced it again. 
He's talking here about five second moments and these are often what he writes down as the homework for life moment. These five second moments are the moments in your life when something fundamentally changes forever. You fall in love, you fall out of love, you discover something new about yourself or another person. Your opinion on a subject dramatically changes. You find forgiveness. You reach acceptance. You sink into despair. You grudgingly resign. You're drowned in regret. You make a life-altering decision. Choose a new path. Accomplish something great. Fail spectacularly. These are the moments that make great stories. They are the moments that we seek when we are doing our homework for life. They are often small and sudden and powerful. These are the best stories. These are the only ones worth telling. And it's not to say that there isn't a place for other stories that happen in our life without a change. It's just the stories that don't have a five-second moment or a change like that, they don't connect us as deeply to others. They're forgotten. They don't stick with you. Those stories that have a change over time, those are what help us connect more deeply with others. And that is, as I mentioned in every episode intro, the purpose of this season. Okay, that was a little bit long-winded, but you'll remember my next tip for finding more stories was a brain dump. I again talked about this in episode F. That's where you just write down anything that comes to mind and stories will bubble up from your past or from whatever you're going through and that can help you find some stories. The third was first, last, best, and worst. And this is on page 79 of the book. He has a chart in here about some first, last, best, and worst prompts. So I mentioned before the idea of a kiss, your first, last, best, and worst kiss, first, last, best, worst car, pet, trouble, injury, gift, travel. Those are some simple ones that you could play this game with. They might help you find some stories. Number four was sharing a happy, a help, and a hard moment from your day with your family. And I have eight total so far, so the next few you haven't heard before. Number five is more for improv, but it's also a good way to find stories. If you were playing this with a group, you'd have the group members write down nouns on slips of paper, put those into a bowl, and then the person whose turn it was would draw out three nouns, and that person would then select which one they want to tell a story about. They have one minute to prepare that story and then two minutes to tell that story. So hence the three, two, one. Three nouns, two minutes to tell the story, one minute to prepare that story. You could also do this in partners or simply try the technique on your own. Number six is a little bit similar because you would write down any object in a room or an action such as running or skating or biking that has meaning to you and you would answer these questions about it. How did that object come into your possession? How are you using that object today? And what does that object mean to you today? This reminds me of my mission because when we were in someone's house, especially someone we didn't know, we would often comment on a piece of their decor or a random thing that we saw on their coffee table, etc. And that would lend itself to a good conversation. We are a species that gives meaning to objects. So that's a way you can find stories. Number seven... I'm not really sure if this is a storytelling technique, but it was also for my mission, so I remembered it. We ate in different people's homes every night, and so you would get asked the same questions over and over again. Where are you from? What do you do? Did you go to college? I'm sure many of you can relate to that. 
I had so many of these experiences that they all melt together and I don't remember many of them. One dinner stands out in my mind though because the couple had us tell them the answer and they would guess the question. (laughs) I really liked that. Anytime you can think outside the box is great. People are interested in those types of stories, those types of conversations because it's out of the norm. It's new and interesting. Maybe next time you introduce your spouse, you could try that. I guess this also kind of leads into when people tell you something about yourself, that's often a story. So maybe when you're describing your spouse or they're describing you, they say something that you didn't know about yourself. That might be a story. And number eight, this one I just titled One Sentence Weekends. Matthew Dix does this with his class often. He has them report on their weekend, but they can only say one sentence. This really helps you hone in on important moments and details and keeps things concise. So that's my section on finding stories. The next section in his book is crafting stories, and I titled mine Story Structure. So I'm going to kind of break down the components of a story, at least in Matthew Dix's perspective. And this is the meat of this episode, which is why I titled it Inside a Story. So as I've said before, and the point that I really want to drive home is that stories need to include a change over time. And again, if you're a visual person or if it helps you, you can write or draw an arc on a paper when you're thinking about a story and you can visualize it that way. To show that change over time, your story needs to have a beginning and an ending that are opposites. Matthew Dix references this on page 118 and he says... You create the arc of a story through the change that your story ultimately describes, starting in one place and landing in another. Think of it like air travel. An airplane takes off, flies through the sky, and lands in a new place. Your story must do the same. I was once hopeful, but now I am not. I was once lost, but now I am found. I was once happy, but now I am sad. I was once uncertain, but now I know. I was once angry, but now I am grateful. I was once afraid, but now I am fearless. I once believed, but now I don't. This change is what makes stories satisfying. It's how storytellers are able to move an audience emotionally. The same holds true for most movies. And I will talk a little bit later about movies of the mind and how storytelling is related to movies. And in telling stories, it's important to remember the question, what serves your story best? What gets your beginning to the end in the best way possible? Only include relevant details and descriptions. You might feel like things are important, and I'm not saying that they aren't, but for your story, for the purposes of getting your audience to see what you see and understand what you understand, what details do you need to include? It might be true, it might have happened, but does it need to be in your story to show that arc of change? Okay, next I have some do's and don'ts with story structure. For each don't, I have a do. So for the first don't, Don't travel log or lay out an itinerary. Matthew Dix says on page 203, stories are not a simple recounting of events. Most of the time that's boring. (laughs) I'm sure we can all remember someone who's told us about their trip and they just say this happened, then this, then this, then this, then this. It's not memorable. It kind of sounds boring because we weren't the person experiencing those things. The do to go along with this is... If location can be removed, it isn't necessary to mention it. And Matthew Dix talks about this on page 102. Let's see. 
Think of it this way. If we remove the location from a story, do you still have a story worth telling? If the answer is no, then you probably don't have a story. If the answer is yes, you might have something I want to hear. It can be tempting, especially if we went to a cool, exotic place, to want to include our location. And again, you can do that with friends and coworkers and family, all those things. But if you're telling a story for the stage and the location isn't necessary, then it needs to be removed. Okay, another don't is using the word and, 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 and over and over and over. If you've ever listened to a younger child tell a story or have read a story written by a younger child, that is the transition word they use most of all. And this happened and this, and then I did this, and then I did this. Instead, the do that Matthew Dix recommends is to, but, and therefore, your way through a story. And of course, any synonyms that are like those. He talks about this on page 200. Using but and therefore gives rhythm to your story. It zigs and then it zags. It says this and then that. The two clauses work against each other, creating a sense of action and movement. For example, the basic sentence is, I loved Heather since sixth grade. She was never my girlfriend. And the one with a better transition word is, I loved Heather since sixth grade, but as much as I loved her, she was never mine. It just creates a little bit of friction between them. The next don't is don't just tell success stories. They are way too easy to tell. And I've mentioned this before, and you'll notice it because in the do, I say share moments of adversity, or Matthew Dick says, or malign yourself or marginalize your accomplishments. It's those stories that are hardest to tell that connect more deeply with others. If you say something vulnerable, other people feel more close to you. They feel like they can share something. They feel like they can relate to you more and that we're all human. Nobody wants to just hear someone gloat. So again, share moments of adversity. Okay, the last don't that I have in this section is stories don't need to be big. Little moments that say something big are great stories. So the do is, if it is a big story, find the small moments. Matthew Dix talks about a storyteller that he had who wanted to share a story about him hiking Mount Everest. He had to work with the person through the process of crafting a story about the smaller moments, his support team that got him there, the experiences he had along the way, those types of things. The smaller moments are more relatable. Few people have climbed Mount Everest, but a lot of people have worked with other people in stressful or important situations. Okay, a few more things to go with structure. All stories need to have stakes. So I'm going to page 141 to talk about this. Simply defined, stakes are the reason audiences listen and continue to listen to a story. Stakes answer questions like, what does the storyteller want or need? What is at peril? What is the storyteller fighting for or against? What will happen next? How is the story going to turn out? Stakes are the reason an audience wants to hear your next sentence. They are the difference between a story that grabs the audience by the throat and holds on tight and one that an audience can take or leave. Stakes are the difference between someone telling you about their mother and someone telling you about the time they wanted to disown their mother. Stakes are the reason we ride roller coasters. They are why we climb trees and arm wrestle or race our friends across the backyard. Stakes are why sports dominate our culture and why asking a girl on a date can be so difficult. We listen to stories because we want to know what happens next. In the best stories, we want to hear the next sentence and the sentence after that and the sentence after that. Through the chapter, Matthew Dix talks about 
ways to increase the stakes. But again, we'll save those for another time. Hmm. Okay, humor in a story. There are four things to remember with humor. Start with a laugh. Make your audience laugh before they cry because it hurts more. Place a laugh after a heavy section to kind of reset the palate and give your audience a break. And then near the end, but not the absolute end, end on heart, close with meaning. So those are just four places to remember to insert humor. Okay, and then the last thing that I'm going to talk about with story structure is what I referenced earlier, how stories are like movies of the mind. When we're telling stories to others, we want them to be drawn in, to kind of forget where they are and to be in a new place. One big way that we do this is when you're telling a story, don't address the audience. Don't ask rhetorical questions, things like that. You don't want to pop the bubble of that sensation of leaving the room and being in a new place. You want them to truly forget where they are. And if you remind them by addressing them, then it will ruin the magic. I've mentioned this before too, but tell your stories through scenes with a location. A location can ground them in your world, but you need to remember to remind audiences where you are. Remind people of your location. When you relay a lot of details, sometimes the audience won't remember where you are. Reminding them of the scene will keep their imagination activated. Especially if you dip into backstory, remind them of the current place that you're at while you're telling the backstory. Pretty tricky to do, but again, just tips, food for thought. Before I talk about the last section, I just wanted to insert here too that I'm still learning all these things as well. I'm working on building my foundation, my knowledge of storytelling, and while my knowledge is getting higher, my application of it is rock bottom. I'm just barely starting to apply these principles, which is very different than just learning them. Wherever you are in that storytelling journey, we can all improve. This last section is the smallest because once you've done all the work to craft it, really telling it is probably the easier part. Depends on how you are in front of crowds or not necessarily even crowds, just whomever you're telling the story to. The first thing that Matthew Dick says about telling a story is it needs to pass the dinner test. When you're telling a story, you want it to sound natural. You don't want it to sound too performancey or come off sounding like poetry or overly rehearsed. It would just be a cousin to whatever you are sharing at dinner. I try as much as I can to sound natural in these podcast episodes, and so I hope that when I tell a story, I can sound natural too, because that's what it means to pass the dinner test, is if it sounds like you're just talking to a friend on stage, maybe a little bit more crafted, then you've got a good story. The next tip is try to tell stories in the present tense. That makes it feel more like a movie and draws your audiences into seeing what you're seeing. The next one is avoid memorization. Again, you want to kind of sound like it's coming off the cuff, but the way you do this is every time you tell a story, try to say it in different words, but conveying the same point. Of course, you can have a few great lines memorized or some examples memorized, but it shouldn't be totally memorized word for word. Matthew Dix always says, remember your scenes, your location. That's what you memorize. And then the way you tell them each time might be slightly different. That's how it can avoid sounding memorized. And then the very last tip is to not stop talking. For me, I have a crutch as a podcast speaker because I can just edit out the pauses. But if I were telling a live story, 
I of course wouldn't just sit on the stage for a bit and think of my next words. So Matthew Dix always says, just don't stop talking. If you forget what you need to say next, just repeat the last thing you said or in a new way. Or just keep talking and then circle back to it. Whatever works, but just don't stop talking when you're on stage or telling a story. And somehow you'll make it to the end. Thank you for listening this week. I hope this was insightful and a little bit more informative as to the how of storytelling. And I will talk to you again next week with a guest. If you'd like to pitch your story for the podcast, or if you want more storytelling strategies, contact me at jenbanks16 at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at jenbankscoaching.